This is Guns and Butter. I'm sitting there and I see 911 and I'm saying, well, in my mind, oh, Oklahoma City, 95, World Trade Center, 93, the government's involved in another one of these fiascos. And I knew exactly why they were involved in it. And I knew exactly where we, were, we the government, was going to go or I was going to go. I'm going to keep exposing them. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ted Gunderson. Ted Gunderson is retired senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division. As a private investigator after retirement from a 28-year career in the FBI, he became convinced of the role of the state in such events as the World Trade Center bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing, and September 11, 2001. Ted Gunderson, welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Bonnie. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Ted, you had a career in the FBI, didn't you? I had an unbelievable career in the FBI. I uh, entered on duty in uh, December 1951 and uh, retired in March of 1979. And in the interim, I had uh, 13 assignments and uh, in 27-plus years. I handled everything from A to Z, Bank robberies, kidnapping, extortion, skyjackings, dealing with terrorism, counterintelligence, New York City, Connecticut. And at the time of my retirement, I was in charge of most of Southern California. I was, uh, my official title was Senior Special Agent in Charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division, which covered all of Central California down to the San Diego and Imperial County borders. Ted, then you retired as FBI Bureau Chief in Los Angeles in 1979? March 1979, as a matter of fact, and actually re- I retired a month early, earlier than initially announced because uh, Ben Civiletti and uh, Griffin Bell, the attorney generals, Ben was deputy attorney general and uh, Griffin Bell was the attorney general of the United States, asked me to coordinate security for the Pan American Games in Puerto Rico, and so I had to move it up uh, from April to March, and uh, and then after that I was uh, a uh, consultant on the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. And uh, I was, oh, by the 1977, I was picked as the Outstanding Law Enforcement Officer of America by the AFL-CIO, Middle Trades Council of Los Angeles. And Jerry Brown, Governor of California, had me as a consultant in 1982. And then I, I got out of the Bureau and, um, and went from there. Ted, has your view of the world and the government changed since you retired from the FBI? The experiences I've had since I retired have uh, it's like a, a 180. I've done a 180. I mean, I love my government because the government, per se, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so forth, that's what it's all about. But the people that are running the government are absolutely unbelievable. We have so much corruption in our government today that uh, it's terrible. And I became involved in it uh, directly out of the Bureau after I retired, through a triple murder in North Carolina, the Jeffrey McDonald case. He's a former Green Beret doctor who was convicted of murdering his wife and two children at Fort Bragg in 1970. And 
what happened was I got into the case. I saw where agents lied under oath. I saw where evidence was lost, destroyed, altered. And uh, the man was framed, and he's still in jail today, three consecutive life sentences. Well, so it first woke me up right there. When I was in the FBI, everything is cataloged, departmentalized. You had your responsibility. We had 169, 164 different categories. And if a case came to our attention in those 164 categories, we investigated. If it didn't, we didn't investigate or we referred it to another agency, whatever the situation might be. As a private investigator, I can investigate anything that I like. And uh, it just grew and grew and grew. And, and of course, this was 1980. Here we are, 2003. Uh, You have no idea how much research I have accumulated. I have probably, uh, to this day, probably 160 boxes of research hidden in five different locations. And what's happened in my life? Bonnie, you can't believe it. I mean, I'm being harassed because of the stance I've taken against the government. One to three times every two or three weeks, somebody gets into my car at night and flips on the direction signal just to let me know they're around. I've had surveillances on me. I've had uh, people come into my house when I'm asleep, burglary, just to let me know that, hey, we're keeping an eye on you. We know who you are. And it's an unbelievable story. And not only that, I've had attempts on my life. I have also uh, had uh, the government has attempted to frame me on uh, three different occasions. I've been under investigation by the FBI. Here I am, a former chief. I had 700 people under my command when I retired. I was one of the top executives in the FBI, but I dared to expose a corrupt system. Again, let me just mention this, Bonnie. There are good people and bad people, right? And that goes for people within the government. We have some wonderful investigators, some good people in the FBI and the CIA and DEA, NSA, but we also have a bad group of people in there. And uh, I think it's very well organized, this element that's infiltrated into these various levels of society. The satanic cults are active, well, and alive. They've not only infiltrated into our intelligence community, they have infiltrated into the local court system, the prosecutors, law enforcement. I have names of uh, doctors, lawyers, judges, and the information people have given me because of going public with this information back in 1980 is mind-boggling. Have you worked as a private investigator on other cases subsequent to that one? I'm the kind of person when something happens, like when Oklahoma City occurred, I went to Oklahoma City. I had two trips to Oklahoma City. I, I personally investigated Oklahoma City. And uh, so I was involved in that investigation. I've investigated a a large-scale pedophile slash kidnapping, child kidnapping ring out of the Midwest that ties into Washington, D.C., called The Finders. The very retirement that I receive from the government through 27, 28 years of work, I basically use that money. I'm single. So I basically use that money to expose corrupt government. So I'm kind of laughing up my sleeve because I do have a very nice little retirement. I had the equivalent in a civilian capacity of a general in the military capacity. So I, I do have a real nice retirement, and it keeps me going, and it helps me to keep investigating this corrupt system that we have. Ted, on September eleventh, two 2001, when two airliners struck the World Trade Center towers, what was your first reaction when that happened? My first reaction, the government's involved. 
And uh, that was my reaction when uh, the Oklahoma City murder building exploded. I was watching it on television, and I said, the government's involved. And the reason I can say that with certainty is because of a series of investigations and a series of events that have taken place over the years, coupled with the research that I've done that involves certain government people into these various crimes. And uh, in uh, the case of uh, 911, for example, I knew that the World Trade Center in 1993, the car bombing. I knew, and I know it to this day, that case involved the FBI. When I say it involved the FBI, the FBI not only knew in advance they were going to car bomb World Trade Center 93, they furnished the ingredients for the bomb. Now, how do I know this? Well, it's in the New York Times article, October 28, 1993. And what happened there was the FBI had an informant, Salam, 43-year-old former Egyptian army officer who was working with the terrorists, and Salam was commissioned by the terrorists to put the bomb together, and he went to his FBI handlers, superiors, and said, we're going to use a dummy bomb, aren't we? And the FBI said, no, we're going to use a real bomb. So I knew that in 93, from, again, my research, the October 28, 1993 New York Times article that came out in the trial, by the way, and by the way, he wore a body mic, when he met with the terrorists, right? Well, unknown to the FBI, he also wore the body mic when he met with the FBI. So they could not lie their way out of this one. And that's probably what kept him from being prosecuted, to be honest with you. He was smart. So uh, then we had this 93 car bombing, and then we had Oklahoma City. And I have a 222-page report on Oklahoma City that I put together. That was not a car bomb. It was a Barometric bomb, and the official name for that bomb is electro-hydrodynamic gaseous fuel device. And it's an extremely powerful bomb, and it was the first experiment with the bomb where it exploded was in 1982 and Area 51. And as a matter of fact, the day that was uh, exploded for the first time, I was with a group of uh, former intelligence officers uh, in Palm Springs, and we were having a, a little social gathering, and we were there for the purpose of determining if it was going to be successful or not. Well, it was so successful it killed two technicians, and President Reagan immediately classified it, and at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing uh, in 95, there were only about 10 scientists, government scientists, who knew how to assemble that bomb and put it together. Now, the government claimed it was a fertilizer bomb. I mean, that's ridiculous. A fertilizer bomb is not going to do the damage that that did. Not only was that a car bomb, that car bomb was this a barometric bomb, but there were five conventional bombs on the inside of the building. And if you know the details of the Murrah building, the witnesses said there were two explosions. There was a boom and then another boom. Boom, boom, nine seconds apart. And... uh what happened there is the first explosion was louder than the second. That was the barometric bomb. And uh, then the explosion nine seconds later was a conventional bomb on the inside that did go off. There were four other conventional bombs on the inside that did not go off. And if they had gone off, of course, that building would have been leveled like the World Trade Center buildings were. Now, my documentation on the four conventional bombs that did not go off is in 
a magazine article written by the Oklahoma City Fire Department. And this article appeared in a National Fireman's publication. And in there, they say they took four unexploded devices out of the building. What better documentation than right from the horse's mouth? So I'm looking at 911, and I'm saying, well, let's see. (laughs) We have 93 car bombing. The government knew about it. The FBI knew about it. Furnishing ingredients for the bomb. And then we have 95, the Murrah building. And we had the Oklahoma City bomb squad in front of the Murrah building at 7.30 in the morning of the bombing. And they went out for coffee, I guess, and forgot their timing. Or McVeigh was late. I'm not sure which it was. Now, wait a minute, Ted. You're saying that the morning of the Oklahoma City bombing, a bomb squad was on site before the bombing took place. They were on site at 7.30 in the morning across the street, yes. and But that's just one facet of the case. So knowing this, uh, knowing uh, that uh, McVeigh was a patsy, and in the meantime, and I'm talking about before 911 occurred, see, I knew all this information. Also, I've talked to an inside investigator on who was involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, and he told me there were at least 11 other individuals involved in the bombing. Uh, McVeigh wrote a letter to his sister, and in the, in the letter to his sister, he told his sister that he'd been recruited by the CIA to become a professional assassin, surprise, surprise, and also uh, to work on the CIA drug operation. Surprise, surprise. You mean to tell me, Bonnie, our government's killing people and that our government's involved in drugs? Yes, they are, and they have been for years. The biggest drug dealer in the world is the CIA and has been for years, Iran-Contra. And knowing all this that I know about the government, that I, this is information, of course, I developed after I retired, and I'm sitting there and I see 911, and I'm saying, well, in my mind, oh, Oklahoma City, 95, World Trade Center, 93, the government's involved in another one of these fiascos. And I knew exactly why they were involved in it, and I knew exactly where we, were, we the government, was going to go or I was going to go because I'm going to keep exposing them after 911, and I've been concentrated on exposing it. I will not allow this to take place without speaking out, without stepping forward. This has to be stopped. This is an evil element within our system that has to be identified. And no thanks to the mainstream media. They aren't identifying anybody. They're part of it. Mainstream media is part of the cover-up. I'm speaking with retired senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division, Ted Gunderson. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Ted, before we leave the Oklahoma bombing, you mentioned the kind of device that was used to blow up the building that had been tested where? In Nevada? It had been tested in Area 51, yes. And now how do you know that? The uh, bomb itself was developed by Hercules Manufacturing in the Silicon Valley by the Reconosudo, Michael Reconosudo family. Marshall Reconosudo, who's the father of Michael Reconosudo, was a personal friend of uh, Dick Nixon's. And himself, Marshall, was part of the uh, intelligence operation in this country. And following his father, Michael became an intelligence agent and was an intelligence agent for years. The day after Oklahoma City bombing, I received a call from Michael, 
And Michael tells me, Ted, that was not a car bomb. That was my bomb, or meaning our bomb. Not that, he, it, that bomb, that particular bomb was Michael's, but we developed that bomb. And Michael gave me this in, inside information about it. And by the way, I have uh, 16 reasons in my report uh, why this was not a fertilizer bomb. And my report, by the way, goes sells for, uh, I think, $25, but it's well worth it if anybody wants to order. I have a lot of other products, too, by the way, that, that expose uh, what's going on. But there's 16 different reasons why, and it's documented why it was not a fertilizer bomb. And also I have in my report a diagram not revealing any confidential information about the barometric bomb, but a diagram of the bomb and explaining the bomb itself. Now, the person who you referred to who told you about this bomb, he knew about it because he works in the CIA? He was in the CIA for years. And uh, unfortunately, he was involved in another matter, and uh, Michael started talking, and I'll explain that in just a minute. And uh, he was told not to talk, and uh, he did it anyway, sign an affidavit before uh, the Brooks Committee, House Committee, investigating Promise Software. And um, six weeks after... He testified before the Brooks Committee. He was arrested for drugs, and he's now serving a 30-year sentence for drugs, first offense. So if you work for the government, inside the government, now I've never been an intelligence agent. I was this outright FBI agent out in front. There's nothing secret about anything that I did, although I had a couple of sensitive assignments. If you work within the intelligence community in these sensitive positions, nefarious activities you're involved in, and you start talking— you end up one of two ways. You end up in jail or you end up dead. It's that simple. And so uh, that's how I knew Michael because I met Michael in 1982, as a matter of fact, through some of my other intelligence contacts and through some of my work. You're like a magnet. If you get involved in these type situations, people come to you and you expand you know, beyond your, what you're doing to the extent that other people come to you and then more people come to you some for advice and some because they think that you can help them. And uh, you just become more knowledgeable about what's really going on. In uh, Michael's case, uh, what happened there was um, in the uh, 1980s, Bill and Nancy Hamilton developed what's called the Promise Software. The company was Inslaw. And Promise Software, through the com- a computer that they developed, tied in all of the intelligence community in the United States, in with law enforcement, the judges, the judicials, matters, uh, and arrests, and everything, the whole package in one package. So you could go into the computer, push a couple of buttons, and you come up with just about any information that you wanted to, if you were authorized to receive it. The um, Promise Software was leased to the U.S. Department of Justice for two years. At the end of two years, the U.S. Department of Justice refused to pay the Hamilton the $10 million that they owed him. Hamilton's went bankrupt, sued the Department of Justice in bankruptcy court, won the case. However, the court said, hey, you're in the wrong court. You've got to go try in another court. They've already spent a million dollars. They don't have another million dollars to spend in a district court. So they lost out there. And, and what happened was the Department of Justice then gave this operation, the Promise Software, to a fellow named Earl Bryant. Earl Bryant, a former owner of United Press International, and a big buddy of uh, Ronnie Reagan's. 
And this was his political payback for the work that he'd done for Ronnie Reagan, helped to get him elected. Earl Bryant then sold this Promise software to the Canadians, the French, English, the Israelis, and some other countries around the world. And unknown to these other countries, it had a trapdoor in it. And the trapdoor enabled our intelligence people to retrieve secretly the information that these other countries had developed and put into the computer. The person who developed that trapdoor for us at the time that he was with the intelligence community was Michael Reconosuto. And so the Brooks Committee is going to investigate Promise Software. And they did. And so Michael was a, a key witness there. And Michael, at the time he put the trap door in the computers, thought he was doing his part as an American. Michael's, uh, you know, mother, apple pie, hot dog, chivalet, baseball. He's all American. He thought he was doing his part for his country. Well, they didn't think so. They, you know, they just wanted to get that other information from these other countries. And uh, so when it came time for the Brooks Committee to investigate it, Michael stepped forward and he said, yes, I did do that. He did testify. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, they got him for drugs. Uh, and I personally think he was set up. I don't think Mike was involved in a drug operation. He was developing a new system for extracting gold from ore in a, um, I'd say about 50 miles in the Canadian border in the state of Washington. And as a matter of fact, I'd been up there to his, uh, his mine that he was working on. And uh, this is what the government went, went after Michael for, and that's where he is today. I testified at his trial. As a matter of fact, Michael and I uh, have done a lot of good work together. For example, uh, Michael and I met with bin Laden in the spring of 86. Now, bin Laden was a hero then, right, because he was fighting the communists, and uh, through the, the work that Michael did, I actually introduced Michael to some people. Uh, through the work that Michael did after he met these people, the um, surface-to-air missiles were supplied to the Afghan rebels, and they defeated the Russians with them. But that's just kind of typical of some of the things that Michael's done. So um, here we are, and uh, when something like this 911 occurs, because of my background and because of what I know and because of my research and some of my work itself, then I have a good sense for, you know, what the truth is. Ted, so Michael Reconosciuto was set up by the government because of his testimony with regard to Promise Software? Michael says that three weeks before he gave an affidavit, he was contacted by a fellow within the Department of Justice named Vietniks. And Vietniks told him, do not testify. If you do, you'll be sorry. And he testified anyway. So that's Michael's story. Yes. I see. I just wanted to close the loop on that because he was the one who was telling you about the actual bomb that was used at Oklahoma City. Yes, he is the one. Michael's a scientist. He's a brilliant scientist. Now, the Brooks Committee, what did they do? Oh, they went on. They said, oh, yes, this is bad, bad, bad. You, got, you can't do that anymore and you're, you're bad boys, and that's it. You know, and they slapped them on the wrist, as we did with Iran-Contra. We slapped them on the wrist with a, a wet paper towel. Bad, bad, bad people in the government don't do that anymore. Okay, we're not going to do it anymore. So what do they do? They'll probably shift over and have somebody else do it, some other agency, probably, because I can't uh, say for sure. But, uh, you know, this is it's cover-up after cover-up. It's the place where if it wasn't so serious, it'd be a joke. 
So, Ted, back to 9-11-2001 and your first reaction to the planes hitting the towers, your first reaction was that the government was involved. Absolutely. I knew it. I knew it right from the beginning. And (laughs) what do you know? The government was involved, my friends. They were involved. And then, you know, looking back at the developments since then, like, for example, the afternoon of 911, I received a call from a doctor in New York City. And he said, Ted, my son, who attends Columbia University and some of his fellow students, were in lower Manhattan after the first plane hit. And they watched the towers, and then they saw the second plane hit. And um, just before both towers collapsed, they heard and saw explosions on the top floors, and they saw the, the floors lift and fall, and then you had a pancake effect, a collapse of the buildings. And they thought that, you know, there were bombs on the inside of the building. Like in Oklahoma City, there were bombs in there that were set to go off. Four of them didn't go off, fortunately. I learned that the afternoon. This doctor called me and told me that. See, this is what happens to me. People call me from all over the country and give me this information. And then I find out later during the investigation by uh, various sources that uh, firefighters on the 76th and the 84th floor, they died, by the way, but they radioed down when they were inside the building that the metal was not melting and they heard bombs going off. So you have a whole series of uh, events like that. And then later on, we developed, we developed, it was developed, information was developed that there were two seismographic explosions in the basement of the uh, towers. This is 70 feet below the surface, by the way. And um, there were fires that burned there for 100 days. And that the steel in the basement was molten molten steel. It melted. So uh, when you look at the whole big picture, and of course this is a very small part of the big picture, but there's little clues here and there that would indicate, hey, not a, it was not just the uh, the airplanes that hit. The buildings may have been imploded, may have been, because there's indications that they were. There's another interesting aspect to this. World Trade Center 93, February 93, car bomb. Middle East connection. Yosef was a head terrorist, fellow named Yosef, CIA trained. Fast forward to 95, Oklahoma City, Middle East connection. The investigator on the inside that told me there were at least 11 other people involved gave me this information. Fast forward, 911, Middle East Connection. And we had Arabs who were involved in 911. We had bin Laden, according to a French newspaper, and I have the article here, by the way, met with the CIA in Dubai July the 4th through the 15th, just a month before 911. Now, why would the CIA meet with him then? But bin Laden is CIA trained. Saddam Hussein, CIA trained. Gaddafi, CIA trained. Noriega, CIA trained. You see the connection? And our media, you know, has a way, our mainstream media absolutely won't even mention these things. The only way you're going to pick and get information like this is through uh, alternative sources like you, Bonnie. Ted, what I don't understand about the Middle Eastern connection Of course, the government has accused Osama bin Laden of being behind it. The government and the the mass media has carried the stories that there were Arab and specifically Saudi hijackers aboard these planes. 
But have you found any real evidence that any of these hijackers were actually on these planes or that Osama bin Laden ever had anything to do with it? Do we have any evidence other than the U.S. government's say-so? Whether they were actually on that, the planes or not, I, you know, the government says that they were, but I don't think there's clarification one way or the other on that. Bin Laden has an interesting background. In addition to being intelligence trained by the CIA, he's also, his family's been in business with the Bushes. I mean, the oil business and, uh, and construction business. And that's all very well documented. I don't have the details in front of me right now. But, uh, you know, the fact that bin Laden is now a fugitive, I can't help but think that uh, if they wanted to find him, they could. And the reason I say that is because several days before 911, they recorded his telephone conversation. The NSA recorded his telephone conversation halfway around the world. I'm speaking with retired senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division, Ted Gunderson. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I can tell you this, that I do have some information from Reconosudo concerning 911. And I find it very interesting. And by the way, I put a report together. And uh, prior to 911, as official investigator of Mike Reconosudo, I should say investigator of record, as well as his attorney, I'm entitled to go in and talk to my client anytime I want to by American law standards, et cetera. I tried for a year and a half to get in and see Michael. My efforts were blocked. Bureau of Prisons would not let me in. Last January, just a few months ago, I was able to get in and see Michael. And Michael told me that as an outgrowth of his meeting with uh, bin Laden in the spring of 86, plus some other contacts that he developed. He had some specific information about 911, prior to 911. He tried to give it to the government. The government would not see him or contact him. Uh, He finally had his attorney write to uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell, his attorney being in Chicago, and the attorney told Colin Powell that he had a client, without without naming Reconosudo, who had information about an imminent terrorist attack. This was prior to 911 and um, that uh, his client needs to be interviewed by the FBI. The attorney also gave information about um, Michael Reconosudo, the fact that Michael had advanced information about an imminent terrorist attack prior to 911, to the U.S. attorney in Chicago and the FBI in Chicago. They did absolutely nothing with it. In the meantime, last uh, January 3rd, 4th, and 5th, I was able to visit Michael in prison in uh, Pennsylvania. And at that time, Michael told me that uh, he had developed his sources. And the FBI finally came and interviewed him in March of 01, six months prior to 911. And at that time, he told FBI agent Kutri, C-U-T-R-I, that he had the identification of an individual in New Jersey, and he gave him this name, Uh, the person who was coordinating forthcoming terrorist attacks on the United States. He had information on the movement of Soviet-made shoulder-fired missiles in the United States that were smuggled in, by the way. Uh, The person who was coordinating the forthcoming skyjackings, 
person who was coordinating bombings and espionage in the United States. And he told the FBI that this person knew the identities of sleepers in the United States and overseas. Now, a sleeper is somebody who comes in supposedly in legal circumstances and they let him sit for X number of years. And then finally they will say, okay, you go to work now, you go and kill this guy or you go run this assignment out or whatever the espionage assignment might be. So Michael gave this to the FBI in March, and he thought he had uh, done his job as a patriotic American, prevented some terrorist attacks. By the way, also, Michael told the FBI that uh, there were 37 Soviet-made missiles, Strela 3s and Igla 9s is what you call them, that were in the process of being smuggled into the United States from Colombia into Canada and then down and that uh, there was a 30-hour window relating to the shipment of these missiles where the FBI could have intercepted them. By the way, they came from Bulgaria to Colombia and then to Canada and then down through an aviation company in Quebec City. And uh, he gave this information to the FBI, and they could have intercepted these 37 missiles, and he thought that uh, that had been accomplished. So then two days after 9-1-1, the FBI agent, Kutri, comes and talks to Michael again. And Mr. Kutri says to Michael, why are you bothering the FBI and wasting its time? Accuse Reconosudo of seeking publicity. Accuse Reconosudo of being anti-FBI and anti-government. Call Reconosudo a conspiracy theorist. Call Reconosudo a know-it-all. Call Reconosudo a hoaxer. Michael was dumbfounded. So then what happened, Michael knew, you know, what side of the fence the FBI was on as far as the information that he had given to them. So then Michael and I decided, this is uh, in corresponding with Michael, this is around the 911 period, by the way, right afterwards, that we needed to pin down the date in March that um, the FBI came and interviewed Michael for credibility, give us credibility. We knew that they were there the 13th. So I wrote a letter to Senator George Allen of Virginia and asked him to write a letter to the FBI and give us specifics, information as to the date that the FBI interviewed Michael in March of 01. We received a response back uh, from Assistant Director of the FBI, and in this letter he said, uh, well, we've interviewed Michael on several occasions, the last one being uh, September 13th, and danced around a a March date. So I wrote another letter to the senator and said, go back to the FBI and tell them we want this specific date in March that they interviewed Michael Reconosudo, pointing out that they danced around this in their previous letter. And we just received a response here about uh, 10 days ago, I did, from the senator, and it enclosed a letter from the assistant director, the FBI, to the senator, And in that letter, the FBI admitted they interviewed Michael in March, as a matter of fact, March the 20th of 01. In that same letter, uh, the FBI assistant director said that they investigated everything that Mike gave them and there was nothing to it, and that Mike has no credibility. However, when Michael was interviewed on 9-13 by Agent Kutry in prison, when Michael was in prison, Kutry came in two days afterwards, Kutri admitted to Michael that they didn't check into any of his material that he gave them 
because he thought the Micah was a liar. Now we have the agent on September the 13th saying to Michael, we didn't do anything on it. And then we have the FBI in their letter to Senator Allen saying, oh, we checked it all out. There's nothing to it. Michael has no credibility. I find it amusing, not amusing because it's serious, but I find it disgusting, I think it'd be more appropriate, that the FBI would say he has no credibility when Michael gave him information in March that there was going to be terrorist attacks, including skyjackings, and they occurred, and now they say he has no credibility? Number one. Number two, Michael has no credibility when his, he and his father, his, their, their company, developed the barometric bomb at Hercules Manufacturing Company. Michael has no credibility when he worked for the agency for a number of years and put in the trap door in the Promise software, not to mention some of the other work that Michael did. I happen to be aware of some of uh, Michael's undercover work. It's phenomenal. He, he was responsible for putting some police officers involved in a drug operation behind bars for years because of his work. And also, Michael and I have personally been responsible for the incarceration of five contract killers, five contract killers. One of them in particular was a contract killer for the government and a member of the satanic cults and a Satanist himself. He was known as Charles Manson II, Bill Mincer. And if you ever read the book, uh, The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry, he's quite prominently mentioned in there, in The Son of Sam, The Berkowitz Murders in New York City. Now, I wrote this report of my results of my interview with Michael. And I'm in Washington. I'm there for three weeks because I'm not going to let this go. I have a tiger by the tail, and I'm going to do something about it. Well, I passed this report out, my report, to 155 congressmen and senators. I gave it to every committee on the Hill, the Senate and the House. I gave a copy to Lee Hamilton, who's co-chairman of the Committee to Investigate 911, and I haven't heard back from any of them. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> Old Ted Gunderson, who used to be in charge of the FBI in Los Angeles, <laughs> and uh, had 700 people under his command, one of the top executives in the FBI, interviews one of our top intelligence agents in the past, of the past, and he doesn't have any credibility. I apparently don't have any credibility. <laughs> And nobody wants to know about this. But I'm not stopping there. I'm going to get the word out. I'm going to the Three Sisters. Well, now the Three Sisters are the New York Times, L.A. Times, and the Washington Post. So I go to the Three Sisters, one at a time. And I get their names, and I say, I've got this report. Would you like to have it? Oh, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at it. Well, I send it to them. They do nothing with it. So then... Uh, Colette Raleigh, the FBI agent in, uh, in Minnesota who tried to get a search warrant on uh, Missouri, and she was refused. I say to myself, well, how can I get the word out on this? So I see a byline by Associated Press reporter uh, Patrick Howe in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, where he interviewed Colette. And I'm saying, oh, this guy's got the guts to get this story out. So I call him. I send my report to him. I call him back 10 days later. I said, you're going to report her, aren't you? He says, no, he says, uh, can't report that. I can't report this information. I said, well, why not? He said, it's too big. It's too big? 
I furnished a copy of this report to the U.S. Attorney General, Glenn Fine, Inspector General of the Department of Justice, Tom Ridge, Homeland Security, Roscoe Howard, U.S. Attorney, Washington, D.C., John Keeney, Criminal Division, Department of Justice. By the way, they did, Criminal Division did acknowledge they received the report. This was several months ago. I take back that I didn't receive response from anybody. But they just said, we received it, thanks. But it was unsigned letter. Nobody dared sign their name. I think because it's too big. I gave this to uh, to John Roberts, of, uh, Office of Professional Responsibility, Rob Davis, Office of Intelligence and Policy Justice, Rumsfeld, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, Intelligence and Research, State Department, CIA, and it, go, it goes on and on and on. I gave it to, I handed it out in the executive branch to 19 executives, National Security Advisor, State Department, White House, everybody and his brother. It's almost a joke. I mean, if we didn't have 3,000 people dead and 168 people in Oklahoma City dead and six people in uh, February of '03 dead and all the millions of dollars of damage, it would be a joke. But it's not a joke. It's, it's disgusting, totally disgusting. But, you know, there's some more, there's a lot more to this, this situation. We have, I mentioned Colette Raleigh. Is that Colleen Raleigh? Well, it's this caller, Miss Raleigh, the attorney agent, the uh, legal attorney for uh, Minneapolis. You know, she she came forward and says, I prepared a, a search warrant for Missouri, and uh, they won't let me serve it, won't let me do anything with it. So the FBI ignored that. And then we had Keith uh, Williams, an FBI agent in uh, Arizona, and uh, he said that the Arabs are taking flight training, and all they're interested in doing is flying the plane. They don't care about taking off and landing. Highly suspicious, I would say. So we have that situation, and he's ignored. And then we had some other uh, situations, and I ran across this in my research. There were two FBI agents interviewed on ABC on December the 19th, 2002. Their names are Robert Wright and John Vincent. And this was ABC News, by the way. And um, they were being interviewed uh, in connection with information that they had developed concerning Osama bin Laden. And in this interview, they notified and told ABC News that they were in the process of conducting a criminal investigation into the money trail of bin Laden. And their supervisor stopped them. Now, money trail might lead right to, oops, wait a minute. The White House, because of the business operations, it might. I don't, I'm not saying it would, but it might. But if that's where the money trail led, this, I would say, uh, would be a reason for telling them not to continue with the investigation. And they were preparing a criminal case against Osama bin Laden. They were told by the supervisor. And here's, I'm going to read from this interview. Let's see, this was uh, FBI agent Wright made this statement. The supervisor who was there from headquarters was right straight across from me, and he started yelling at me, you will not open criminal investigations. I forbid any of you. You will not open criminal investigations against any of these intelligence subjects, Wright said. And even though they were on the terrorist task force and they said they had proof of criminal activity, Wright was told not to pursue the matter. Now, in this same interview, the name Mark Flesner came out. Mark Flesner was the assistant U.S. attorney who was working with Wright and Vincent on developing a case against bin Laden. 
And uh, he confirmed that he was told by Washington, D.C. supervisors, his supervisors, not to press the matter and to back off an investigation of Osama bin Laden. So there you have another little nail in the coffin, so to speak, and another situation where an investigation was thwarted by the supervisors. Now, I'm asking myself, if the two agents in Chicago were told to back off and the Raleigh was told not to prepare a search warrant and Keith Williams, the agent in Arizona, was ignored, why would they pay any attention to Michael Reconosuto? He falls in the same category, trying to help out, trying to give him information. I cannot imagine that the FBI would not at least look into this if they were sincere about developing all the information that they needed to develop concerning 911. I'm speaking with retired senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division, Ted Gunderson. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Ted, when we first began speaking about 9-11, and I asked you about your initial reaction, you said you had two reactions, that the government was involved and you felt you knew why they were involved. Why do you think that they were involved in the events of 9-11? That's an easy question. Go back to the George Bush Senior Administration, 1980s. At that time, the anti-terrorism legislation was written by Department of Justice attorneys. One of the attorneys, and I have her name in my file someplace, I wish I could put my hands on it, but I can't write at this moment, publicly made the statement, before this passes, people have to be killed. Okay, fast forward to uh, February 1993, World Trade Center car bombing. The FBI knew in advance they were going to bomb it and furnish ingredients for the bomb. There were six people killed, not enough people killed to pass the anti-terrorism legislation. And the only reason there were six people and not more killed there was because the car bomb was to have been placed next to a support pillar, and there was another car illegally parked there, so they parked it someplace else, and otherwise it may have brought one of the towers down. But anyway, there weren't enough people killed. There was, uh, I think, uh, a thousand people injured and a half million dollars in damage. But not enough people killed to pass the anti-terrorism legislation. Fast forward to 1995, the Murrah Building, Oklahoma City. 168 people killed. One year later, the anti-terrorism legislation passed. But it wasn't tough enough. It wasn't stringent enough. We needed something that was stronger than that. I'm talking on behalf of the government, the corrupt government, not the good government, the corrupt government. And so uh, along comes 911. Almost 3,000 people are killed. We have almost immediately passed Homeland Security, which is another step toward a police state. We also have, of course, Patriot Act. One is passed, and now we're sitting around waiting for the other shoe to fall, and that would be Patriot Act Two. But before we go on to that, let me mention that these acts, this Homeland Security, 178,000 people in one agency, takes over all of law enforcement, total control of the FBI, of the police, of the sheriffs, and so forth, and then Patriot Act One takes away many of our constitutional rights and civil liberties, absolutely uh, indiscriminate wiretapping and other activity that uh, is, uh, you know, despicable in a so-called freedom society. And then if Patriot Act Two passes, 
This is a, a document that, uh, it's an 87-page document that was leaked. It was prepared by uh, Department of Justice, and the Congress wasn't even aware of it. And when Congress found out about it, they're up in arms. Well, why weren't we informed? Of course, they didn't want anybody to be aware of it. They knew it would be leaked. But this would make uh, people that are against the war terrorists. We'll all be terrorists. We can be uh, arrested, tried in a military tribunal. That means, uh, you know, no attorneys, no judges. Uh, it means, uh, you know, we can be hauled off to Timbuktu and just disappear. It's all scary, and it's scary that it's gone this far. But uh, I've got a couple of um, sites for Patriot Act II that you might want to look into, and it's www.publicintegrity.org. And another site that you might want to look into is www.whatbushnew. What Bush knew. Those are some sites that you might want to take a look at. It. But the anti-war, it, it will be there. We can be taken off. We can, as they say, we can just kiss our you-know-what goodbye. And uh, it goes on from there. But, you know, right now they're, they're talking about, as far as Homeland Security is concerned, they want every one in every ten Americans to be snitches for the government. <laughs> I mean, this is what Adolf Hitler did. <laughs> uh, we have an Operation Garden Plot, by the way. Guard plot is how to handle the, inter uh, the internment of civilians by the military. I have a copy of that book, by the way. It's, it was printed in 1994 by the U.S. Air Force. And, uh, and then they're talking about national identification cards and control of all our money that we earn and spend, uh, microchips and children. They have devices in cars that will track your car. That's how close it is for us losing everything that we have in the way of freedom. Since September 11th, 2001, you have looked into a lot of different aspects of the attacks, haven't you? Well, and, you know, specifically, uh, just a few that I might mention. The, uh, it's kind of interesting. There were the four jets that were skyjacked, they all turned their transponders off at about the same time, which would indicate some coordination there. And by the way, in talking to Michael Reconosuto, uh, he said that there were actually six jets that were to have been skyjacked, and he has the name and was willing to furnish the names of 30 terrorists to the FBI. As you know, there were 20 that were identified, the 20th being Missouri up in Minnesota. He didn't make the plane. He missed the plane. But so we have actually we have 30 terrorists. Michael Reconosuto is willing to get, furnish their names. And uh, we have four skyjacked planes and two that were not skyjacked because I think FAA grounded the planes. Michael told me that the other two targets were to have been the Capitol building and also the Statue of Liberty. But in looking back, it's a little more than a coincidence. Four just turned off the transponders at the same time with no scramble. Uh, and then there's some other questions that have come up. Um, why did it take 28 minutes for the flight controller to notify NORAD that the two planes had been hijacked when the average time to do so is just a case of usually three minutes, why were the fighters scrambled from a base 180 miles away when seven other bases had fighter jets ready that could have done the job in a fraction of the time? Why was FEMA in New York the night before the crashes, Monday night, September the 10th? Why did those fires at the base of the tower burn for 100 days? That's 70 feet below the surface, seven floors. 
And another interesting question is, who made the billions of dollars, billions of dollars, from all of the put options on the two airlines the day before the attacks? Now, what that means is that United Airlines and American Airlines stock options, put options, uh, were unusually high just before the attack. For example, United Airlines, this is according to a, a CBS News report on September the 26th, 01. United Airlines was 90 times above the normal from September 6th through the 10th of 01, 285 times higher on Thursday before the attack. Those are the put options. American Airlines, this is on CBS News, uh, September 26th also. On September the 10th, 01, American Airlines was 60 times above the normal in put options. So that's, there's somebody besides the Arabs must have known about this. How about Wall Street knowing about this? How about money? How about greed? Right, that's what it's all about. And control. Our government are past masters at creating a crisis for their own gain, for its own gain, for its own self-purposes, and then covering it up. And the news media goes right along, mainstream media goes right along with it. Well, Ted Gunderson, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> telling me I've got to be aware. I've been speaking with private investigator and retired senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division, Ted Gunderson. Ted Gunderson can be contacted by mail at P.O. Box 18000-259, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89114. That's P.O. Box 18000-259, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89114. By voicemail at 310 310- 3642280 His website is tedgunderson.com Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me Bonnie Faulkner To leave comments or order copies of the show call 510-848-6767 extension 628 or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net Hey yo that we live in G And our new world order is about to begin You know what I'm saying? Now the question is Are you ready for the real revolution Which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine